And then birds or bees? Uh, you know, they both, in some context, they mean the same, right? The birds and the bees, but I'll go with bees. All right, and that's a perfect transition to our uh, conversation <laughs> tonight, uh, the future of bees. So before we get into the, the deeper questions, maybe just a few words about yourself and, and the company that uh, you're currently uh, CEO and co-founder of. I'm Sar from uh, BeWise. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, appreciate you guys taking time off your uh, busy schedules, busy schedules. Um, and uh, BeWise is a company that, uh, that made its mission and our raison d'etre, right? Our, our reason for existing and saving the bees. There's a lot of uh, faces to that. You know, we'll talk about the commercial side and all that, but, but essentially we are here to save the bees and we're, we're throwing everything at it, right? Existing uh, 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 modern technologies like artificial intelligence, neural networks, uh, precision robotics, computer vision, anything we can find that is accessible and available uh, to actually uh, apply it towards the benefit of the bees to allow the bees not only to survive, but to thrive, which is kind of something that most people don't even think about. We're all talking about survival of the bees. We're thinking about, okay, using modern technology, we can actually allow bees to thrive in nature. Amazing. So at least for me, and I think when most people think about bees, they think about honey. <clears throat> um, what else are they missing out on? How are bees used today in other ways? So again, probably some of you already know this, but I'll just repeat it because it's so important and, and strategic. Um, so 70, about 75% of all the fruit, vegetables, seeds, and nuts that we consume on this planet is pollinated by bees. And again, 8 billion people, 75% of the fruits and vegetables that we eat is pollinated by bees. And we all know today, I mean, we can live off of corn and rice, but we all know that a healthy diet means, you know, longevity and a healthy, uh, 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 you know, healthy and, and well-being. And so, uh, Bees are the ones who actually do that, that part of the pollination. And so they're strategic to our global food supply. It's not just about the honey. Remember that every time a bee goes out to the field and pollinates a flower, they bring back nectar and pollen into the hive. And that's how they produce honey, uh, which is their carbs. And so uh, uh, the honey is nice and honey is actually pretty ubiquitous today. Most people think about honey as, you know, uh, the, the, the honey jars or Winnie the Pooh, but, but honey is mostly utilized today in, in you know, honey at Cheerios and other products uh, like honey, Dijon, uh, Dijon mustard and, and so on, and even cosmetics and, and healthy foods like propolis and the uh, things we take for a sore throat. Uh, these are all products of the bee, but it all starts from pollination. And, and I always like to think about the bees as the infrastructure of farming. I'll just add another word about that. You sure. can have an amazing almond grove with amazing soil and good grains, uh, motivated labor, perfect weather, and even like uh, uh, great netophim irrigation. If you don't bring in the bees for pollination in February, right now this month, you're probably not gonna get much almond. And so, and so it's kind of a limiting factor, right? You need many things beside the bees to produce an almond, 
but if you don't have the bees, you're not going to get your almonds. And so this is why we see them as the, as the infrastructure of farming uh, um, and very strategic to our global food supply. So let's take a, a step back before we take a step forward. Um, obviously, bees naturally in nature um, only have uh, a certain amount of capacity to, to produce these almonds and other you know, uh, uh, crops and, and vegetables. How did this creature become integrated into this global food, food chain that we now take for granted in many places? <clears throat> So there's a, there's a very strong uh, uh, um, symbiosis between the bees and nature, uh, or the flowers actually. Uh, nature has worked very hard for the last, you know, somewhere between 200 and 100 million years to actually um, create a perfect match between the bees and the flowers. Uh, uh, things like, we don't always necessarily think about them, but the length of the tongue of the bee is exactly is perfect uh, for the depth of the flower and where the nectar is, uh, which is how they collect the nectar with their tongue. Uh, so nature has worked really hard for hundred million years to create this perfect match uh, for flowers that need pollination. They need their male organs, their male pollen to kind of move to the uh, uh, female pollen. And, and nature has created the bee to do exactly that. And so uh, um, it used to be the case where bees were wild and there were many in nature and they would pollinate uh, enough fruit and nuts and seeds and vegetables for humanity. But we, we kind of outgrew, we outpaced nature and now there's almost 8 billion of us. And so uh, we, we kind of commercialized and industrial the bees or the pollination part of the bees to kind of accommodate our global food supply. And, and what, did that, what does that look like? I mean, practically speaking, how do we take this creature in nature and then, you know, almost artificially insert it into the farm, you know, sort of ecosystem? What happened is in about uh, mid 1800s, a gentleman by the name of, of Longstroth, he invented the modern beehive, right? The, you know, white wooden box that's now almost 170 years old. Yeah. And in that box, he found a mechanism that lures the bees and creates a, a good, good enough environment for them to, uh, to live and thrive. And so these frames, the honeycombs that we see in hives, this is what he invented. And so the bees come there and they live there and they grow their colony and they produce honey in there. And they also go out and do what they do in the field, which is pollination in order to produce the honey that they need. Remember, just one interesting anecdote that not, not everybody knows is that the, the, the bees' honey is the food they produce for themselves during the summer so they can have it during winter where there's no forage. Right? When there's a lot of forage out there, they produce honey and they store it so that they have food during the winter. Now, honey has no uh, shelf life, so you can actually store it for a very long time. And so this is their trick to survive harsh winters when there's not enough forage out there. And so uh, these hives, these wooden boxes are being used today by beekeepers, especially by commercial beekeepers. They move them around for pollination purposes. So in February, they come in and they pollinate the almond. 
And then in March, they go, you know, northwards uh, uh, towards, uh, you know, Oregon and Washington to pollinate the apple. And then they go inland to pollinate berries and so on and so forth. So beekeeping today is a migratory business. It's a migratory uh, uh, profession, so to speak, so that uh, they can move their hives around for pollination purposes. How do they get moved around? How do you move around bees? So they're in hives and think about commercial beekeepers as those who have thousands of beehives and they just load them on trucks. It's kind of weird when you think about it, right? Think about 75% of the global food supply, right? The, 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 the fruits and vegetables that we consume everywhere in the world, right? China is the biggest consumer of, of tomatoes and, and cucumbers. It's not like just the US or Europe, it's, it's ubiquitous today. People in, in white protective gear move wooden boxes from one field to the other. This is how the infrastructure of farming works today. It's kind of mind boggling when you think about it. And what they do is they actually load them on trucks, right? So you see 18 wheelers, you see those big semis yeah. uh, and they can hold up to 400, you know, or a little bit over 400 hives and they move around. And when you have to move 2 million hives throughout the, the year uh, across the nation, think about 2 million hives divided on 400 uh, uh, hive loads. It's a lot of thousands of, of trucks moving around the entire nation, entire country, just to move those hives from one uh, uh, orchard or from one crop to the other throughout the year. Yeah, that's crazy. Are, are you a bee? Uh, I could be a bee, uh, but no, right now I'm a... I'm a human still. being. Yeah. You're spending so much time around the bees. You know, sometimes you just become become that at a certain point. But it's good to know you're still still wearing the human hat. So, what happened in the in the recent past that brought bee health to our collective consciousness? Was there some sort of catalyst? Because they've been, you know, very prominent in the news cycle in the, in the last several years. What happened? If I had to sum it in one sentence, or even actually two words, I would say we happened. Mm. Uh, so, so nature has worked really hard to kind of create this perfect match, this love affair between flowers and bees, and everything worked well uh, until uh, 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 you know we came along. And in a mere 50 years, think about over 100 million years, this mechanism has been working well. And we humans, in 50 years, were able to like we do with many other things in, on this planet, we, we disrupted yeah. it and we, we just, we broke it down. And what we did are, are some things that I'll kind of talk about now in, in 30 seconds and I'll kind of show you how, how we break stuff. Sometimes it's good, most of the time it isn't. But first of all, climate change, right? We see the effects of climate change of the industrialization and modernization uh, and that affects the bees. It affects them tremendously, right? They, they, they grew up over millions of years in a certain environment, and now the environment is changing, and it's changing fast. Mm -hmm. and, and they can't adapt. It's too fast for, for you know, natural selection to help them adapt to the changes we bring in, in, in less than a century. The second thing is uh, uh, pests, right? There's certain pests that used to exist in certain regions of the world with certain type of bees that could cope with these pests, right? Like mm -hmm. the varroa. You know, look it up after this, uh, this Zoom call. 
And so what we did is, you know, we made the world very small and we moved things around between countries. So we moved the Varroa from one area of the world to the rest of the world. And now the Varroa is ubiquitous and prominent. And the Varroa is a pest that uh, uh, it doesn't allow the bee to filter uh, uh, certain uh, 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 poisons, right? And so the bee, essentially think of the bee as not having an immune system because of this little pest. It sits on the bee and it sucks its uh, uh, immune system out, literally yeah. punches a hole in the bee. And so these pests, we, we kind of brought them along, right? Uh, pesticides, the pesticides we use in the field to keep our trees healthy and our uh, crops healthy are killing our bees. Mm -hmm. And so if I bring in bees to my crop, right? The bees don't know where the limits of my crop are. They just go all around for, you know, two, three miles. And so they, they go to my neighbor, which happens to put pesticides that same day in his fields or in her field. Yeah. And the bees die, colonies collapse. And, and so there's, there's, for the bees, unfortunately, it's the perfect storm. There's, there's a variety of reasons why the bees or the colonies are collapsing and it's all happening simultaneously. And all these stressors are really that's why we're seeing such tremendous bee, pop, bee, bee declines, and uh, you know I would say 100 percent, but let's just be cautious. 95 percent of that is because of us humans. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, maybe just let's let's dive in a little bit deeper on those elements that you've outlined. So, <clears throat> you know, is there anything that we can do in terms of climate change that would have a material impact on the bee, bee health? Is there anything we can do in terms of, you know, reducing our pesticide usage that you think is realistic and, you know, we can actually turn back sort of that, that threat? And obviously the varroa mite is here. Um, is there any way we can give bees immunity against, you know, this, this creature that's you know constantly on the the hunt for for bee populations. So there might be ways. Uh, you know this the, the declining bee populations is a problem that we've been talking about. You know we you know humans for about 40, 50 years we see those declines happening for the last half century. So um, over a hundred billion dollars, hundred billion dollars has been spent over the last 50 years to save the bees by private institutions, public institutions, universities, private companies, many, many people are trying to save the bee and yeah. for good reason. Um, yeah. And so there's some crazy ideas, like you say, can we change the bees DNA to cope better with certain modern stressors? Can we change climate change or undo climate change? Can we stop pesticides from being used in the fields? So there's a lot of things we can do they haven't, be super, they haven't been super successful in the last 50 years. And so, and so when we looked at the problem from our standpoint, you know, B-wise, what we realized is it's going to be very expensive and will require many, many years to get rid of those stressors that we see uh, 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 you know, that are basically affecting the, the bee populations. Mm -hmm. And so what we did is we kind of took a different approach and we said, okay, instead of changing the, 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 the you know, human nature or the bee's DNA, why don't we give bees a fighting chance with modern technology that is relatively cheap, right? Off the shelf existing technologies, 
neural networks that are today pretty common and accessible. Precision robotics, uh, relatively, again, accessible and cheap, and put all that into to work for the benefit of the bee. Yeah, so it seems like a pretty elegant uh, approach. Um, another you know, question on that front is just out of, out of curiosity, <clears throat> what about like uh, cell phone towers and all of the signal in the you know, spectrum that's being transmitted? Does this confuse bees and cause them to you know, sort of be uh, uh, you know, fl flying in circles as opposed to being on a, a, making a beeline for, for the, the flowers? Yeah, there is research that shows that, but then again, you know, there's research research that shows the opposite. And for every paper you'll find, there's two others that say something different. So mm -hmm. we don't know too much about it. And I, I can't say I know about it enough, but I would say in general, just a general thought that when you have a, a weak bee population, many things that shouldn't affect the bees affect them. It's like us humans, you know, when you're sick, Every little thing can disorient you or can take you down, essentially. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, you mentioned the varroa mite. The varroa mite is that pest that, that essentially eats the bee's immune system. So bees today, you know, almost 100% of the bees in the world, let's just take, a, again, to be on the, on the safe side, 80% of the bees today have the varroa mite. They have, they are born without the immune system. The varroa mite affects the bees before they're born. It needs oh, wow. their immune system. When the bees hatch, they hatch they're, with they're a very weak. weak immune system. They're is weak. That because, and so that now because their mother was, was affected by the mite? Or how, how does no, that happen? No, no. The mite actually goes in and, and it, 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 it latches onto the bee when the bee is still uh, a brood, when it's still uh, uh, in its, in its uh, uh, you know, like... Well, yeah, before it's before it hatches, right? Yeah, the bees go through several stages before it hatches, and and the varroa mite goes into the actual uh, uh, honeycomb or the combs. It's not honeycombs. There's no honey there. There's brood, and and it actually uh, affects the bee. And when the bee hatches, the bees are already weak with no almost no immune system, and so many things affect it. You don't need a lot of pesticides to take down the bees today. Whereas if the bee was strong and the colony was strong. They might be able to survive mm. uh, a pesticide-infected field and still just come out of it uh, 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 strong. And there's there's a lot of different species of bee. So is that you know consistent across all bee species that that phenomenon that's happening? Or are there certain bee bee types that are you know just naturally stronger or naturally more you know resistant to, to these threats? Yeah, so there, there is, when you say many, you know, species of bees, there are, you know, thousands and some say even tens of thousands of species of bees, and some are naturally immune to the varroa, right? The varroa, yeah. this specific mite has been growing for the last millions of years with bees, and right. colonies were able to adapt and, and cope, but not, not the common honeybee, right? The, the bee yeah. that pollinates that bee doesn't know how to cope with the varroa. So I would say there's bees that can cope with anything, right? Somewhere right. in the world. But the most common bee that we see today are the honey bees that actually both pollinate and produce honey. And these bees 
are the ones who are declining now and we can't yeah. really, they can't cope with these modern stressors. And, and have we seen the impact of these bee populations declining on crop yields and prices of certain, you know, vegetables like avocados, for example? Yeah, uh, you know, look, uh, you know, I always like to kind of think about supply and demand as, as something that has a, a certain dynamic. So, you know, uh, 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 flat screen TVs didn't used to be the norm. Back in the day, they were very expensive and, you know, they were a very cer certain size and you can you know, only afford few if you had a lot of money. Right. But as demand, you know, outpaced supply, the prices plummet and, and mm -hmm. kind of you know, supply started to, apologize, supply started to kind of close that gap and prices go down. And that's a natural dynamic in any industry, almost any industry that's kind of commoditized, right? Yeah. When you look at, at avocados, for example, or even, even cucumber, which is a much more common vegetable, you don't see that trend. The prices fluctuate because there's a lot of uncertainties when you produce these, these crops. And so uh, when you don't have visibility and projectability in terms of how well will pollination work, because guess what? You ordered a thousand hives, but 30% died over the year and you got only 700. You're not gonna get the levels of pollination you need to pollinate all the flowers. And if you don't pollinate all the flowers, naturally you'll get less uh, fruit or vegetable, the crop, the yields will be lower. And so there's a direct correlation between how strong the pollination is and the crop that you get at the end. Now, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you don't have enough crop, you don't get enough, uh, if you don't have enough, uh, sorry, pollination, you don't get enough crop. If you don't get enough crop, the prices fluctuate. If yeah. the prices go up by 1% for cucumbers or tomato or, 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 even avocado, some populations still would have access to those to those vegetables. But there's there's some populations in the world that just a one percent increase in prices actually excludes them completely mm -hmm. from those crops, from tomatoes mm -hmm. and cucumbers. And unfortunately, those populations are usually the ones that are kind of more unfortunate and poorer. So yeah, this fluctuation in prices. Uh, uh, to some extent due to pollination uh, actually affects the more unfortunate populations on this planet. And so how do you guarantee pollination and make sure that you don't have to deal with these uncertainties around how many bees are going to be alive and how many bees are going to be available for a specific, you know, grow or, 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 or season? You can't, right? right? Because because you have declining colonies every year. We're losing somewhere between twenty to forty percent of the colonies uh, in certain areas. For example, in the U.S., every year twenty to forty percent of the colonies collapse. Uh, this right. is sometimes referred to as colony collapse disorder. But in general, think about people. Just people the are playing a drinking game. Colonies. People are playing a drinking game on this fireside chat. Every time you say colony collapse disorder, they take a shot. So that's the, the first time you said it. Now we'll be listening for, for number two and number three. Go on. CCD. Well, I, if I know now, I'll say it much more. I mean, I want people <laughs> to have fun on this. On this uh, exactly. But, uh, uh, but the idea is that 
when you have something that is not within your control, it's not a controlled environment, yeah. you lose those populations, you really don't have a lot of projectability and a lot of visibility in terms of how much effective pollination you'll get next year. And that's right. a problem. And so, and so when we get to our solution, we'll talk a little bit more about how we solve for this. Now, just yeah, a question before we jump there. Um, you know, I remember we had a, a discussion earlier on um, about farmers who are trying to vertically integrate and actually bring beehives onto their, um, you know, farms and then, you know, kind of guarantee pollination or have more control over that, that process. Has that experiment panned out for those growers or um, has it been, you know, sort of a flop? I would say that uh, depends who you ask. If you ask them, they might say that it's a success, but, you know, I would say objectively, we don't see that enough, meaning that there's no commercial viability to that, to that pattern. And that is also a lot to do with the declining uh, colonies. What happens is when you lose a lot of your revenue generating asset, which is the bees every year, uh, you really have to be a, a, a very professional commercial beekeeper to try and kind of hedge that, right, or to, to, to control that. And so uh, farmers are farmers. They're not beekeepers. Beekeepers are the ones who know how to grow bees. They're called right. beekeepers. They keep bees. Right. And so uh, some farmers have tried to integrate beekeeping into their you know, business, into their, their, their enterprise in order to guarantee or, or at least have access to pollination. Uh, but most don't do it. And, and again, one of the reasons is the lack of technology. When it's all mm -hmm. manual labor, right, that uh, uh, depends on, on people, specific people that know how to keep bees, you know, the professional beekeepers, then if you don't have access to that, those professional beekeepers, even if you wanted to grow bees, you couldn't. Mm. Interesting. So, um, you know, if we had more beekeepers and more people, you know, working in these yards and working on the hives themselves, do you think we could do a better job of pr protecting the bees? Yes. So the idea is that the professionals, the professional beekeepers, they know how to treat bees. They know how to keep bees and how to grow bees. So if, if a commercial beekeeper would visit their hive, all of their hives every single day, uh, they would be able to treat their hives uh, in a much more precise manner. So if, yeah. they, uh, uh, if they identified a disease or a pest, or if they knew there were pesticides around the hive, they could take action in real time, right on the spot and save the bees, right? If you see that, there's, that your neighbor is applying pesticides, take the, take the combs out, right? Move yeah. the combs around. Or if it's too cold, you know, warm them up. If it's too hot, you know, cool them down. If right. you see a disease, you know, apply a medicine, you know, antibiotics or whatever you need to. Uh, right. uh, but that's not really feasible at scale, right? Think about people that manage thousands of hives and hives are scattered over vast regions. You right. can't really give your hives or your bees that precise real-time treatment when they need uh, uh, unfortunately, even if you have some monitoring systems around that monitor your hives and tell you when things are wrong, you still have to jump on a car, drive, treat your bees, 
and, and that's just the labor is, is cost prohibitive. And that's why we see the declining uh, numbers. Right. And, and what's stopping the beekeepers from concentrating the hives all in one place and sort of, you know, reducing that, that spread geographically? Yeah, again, if, if, you're a, if you're a commercial beekeeper and you want to produce honey, you need a lot of forage. Or if you want to mm. pollinate, you need to take your hives to the, the almond grove. And so there's an almond grove in, in California and there's pollination in, in Washington and there's uh, honey producing forage in North Dakota. So you, you split your portfolio. So your hives yeah. are really scattered over very vast regions. Sometimes beekeepers have to drive two, three, four, five, six hours just to get to the, the hives themselves and treat them. Yeah. And this is why the frequency of visits, the frequency of treatments of bees is usually once in every few weeks, two, three, four, five weeks. And that's just not good enough. If you come in three weeks to this hive, if there was a disease during that time, or if there was a pest or if there were pesticides, you're going to find a collapsed colony and it doesn't matter what you do. Mm -hmm. um, and then isn't there also like a generational transition issue here? You know, it's funny that you say that uh, in uh, uh, <clears throat> the UN has put, you know, one of their top strategic goals or, or their threats is that uh, uh, the pollinators are disappearing, right? The bees are collapsing. The second most, uh, uh, the second biggest threat is that the beekeepers are disappearing. Yeah, you know, I don't know many people that went to school and came out and said, oh, I'm going to be a beekeeper for the rest of my life. I mean, that usually it's kind of something more uh, a family business or that you kind of right. found yourself into. But we don't see an influx of beekeepers coming in to replace the older generation today. Right. So we have colony collapse disorder. And we have beekeeper collapse disorder. Let's just call it beekeepers retiring, okay? I mean, that's, uh... <laughs> um, okay, so I, I think the, the picture is clear. You know, there, there's a real issue and there's not a clear way out using existing approaches. So maybe you can shed a little bit of light on, um, you know, the approach that, that you guys have developed and, um, you know, sort of what, what you've learned so far in, in building this new approach. So what we did is we realized that um, a lot of these things are affecting the bees. And one of the limiting factors is the fact the bees are being kept, uh, the beekeepers are keeping the bees in these wooden 150 year old hives, right? 170 year old, year old hives. And, and when they drive over to their hives because they need to treat the hive or the colony, they have no clue what they're going to find. Again, they come and they take the whole factory with them, right? They might find a, a collapsed colony. They might find a hive that, or a colony that needs medicine or water. Maybe there's not enough forage. So they bring everything with them. They drive for many hours. They get to the bee yard. You cluster hives together. They're not one by one. They're usually about 20 to 40 together clustered in a certain area that is called a bee yard. They get to the bee yard and then they open the hatch, so to speak, they look inside and only then do they know what's going on in their hive. Until that point, they don't know. Think about running a business. You have 10,000 of these boxes. That's your revenue generating asset. And you as the owner, you have no clue what's going on. You just know statistically during this time of year what you should expect. But realistically, 
It's not a data-driven business. It's a business mm-hmm. that is driven on, you know, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And so, mm-hmm. and so the idea is that um, once we realize that, we realize, first of all, there's not, uh, there's not enough monitoring on those bees. There's not a mechanism to know and tell what's going on. And then when you do find what's wrong, there's, not a, there, there's no system in place to actually treat the bees. Now, look, I always like to give the example, I have a four-year-old son, and if he has uh, ear pain, uh, you know, that same night, I put a few drops in his ear and the pain goes away. Problem solved. Three drops can solve you a lot of problems. But if you wait for a week and you don't treat him, you might have to give him antibiotics after a week. And if you don't treat him then, we might have to take him in for a procedure after two weeks. And so the idea of real-time treatment is critical to saving a colony. The same mm-hmm. thing applies to bees and any biological model. Yeah. And so what we've developed is this device behind me that what it does, it contains 24 hives, 12 on both sides. And in the center, there's a robot that constantly monitors the bees in the hives. And that robot has a very powerful uh, uh, brain, so to speak, artificial intelligence that uh, identifies exactly what the bees' needs are. There's a million bees in this device. In every one of these devices, about a million bees during the high time. And so the robot monitors, the artificial intelligence identifies what the needs are, food, water, too cold, too hot. There's a pest, there's pesticides, there's a disease. And then the robot itself treats the bees inside the hives, right? So it applies the treatment towards the hives. And and the results are staggering because that real-time treatment, it's just the same as if a beekeeper would be there. We mimic a beekeeper. We did not invent anything around beekeeping. We apply the same beekeeping techniques, exactly the same beekeeping techniques that a beekeeper would do in the field. We just do it with a robot. And the bees... They don't mind if it's a human eye looking at them or a camera. They don't care if it's a human hand, you know, treating them or a robotic hand. It doesn't matter to them as long as you treat them. And what we've seen, we have have tens of these devices scattered in the fields. Some are operational for over two years. And we've seen a less than 10% colony collapse. It's actually less than 8%, 7.59% colony collapse consistently throughout a couple of years mm-hmm. in these devices. And the only thing we do, again, this is a very nascent product, right? We're only two and a half years old. It's a right. very, very new product. And still what we see is an incredibly decreased mortality rate or, or collapse rate of colonies just because of the sheer fact that we can treat bees. And it's all done remotely in the field. Nobody has to actually drive over there and apply treatment and rush the, the hives out when there's pesticides or get rid of, of varroa manually. It's all done inside this device completely autonomously by a robot. It sounds too good to be true. Um, so m- maybe it is. Um, how do you even identify, you know, what a mite looks like, you know, inside of a dark, metal box and and how do you you know decide what which hive to put spray on and how does it not affect other hives and kind of i know it's a (laughs) it's a black box if you will but 
maybe you can share a little bit of light on you know how you've managed to to overcome some of these problems initially yeah so uh there's a lot of problems that we had to overcome there's a lot of learning a lot of technology and ip in this device uh many you know uh, over a dozen of patents actually 18 patents on these on these things so yeah. what you the things you mentioned are are the challenges we had to overcome and not only that the biggest challenge is how, how do you do it cost effectively right right because you can solve any problem on this planet if you throw enough money at it and you can make a very expensive device but making a very cheap device that you can now scatter you know around the globe instead of the old hives Uh, that was the big challenge and I'm happy to say that we were successful in making this a very cost effective solution right think of it as a solution uh, and yeah we see we literally have eyes on hives we see everything that is going on and a neural network actually identifies all these things from varroa through brood honey pollen eggs varroa eggs so we know whether there's a, a When there's eggs in the hive and the queen is performing, we can see the queen, we can see swarm cells and we can see superseder cells. We can see everything inside the hive. And when I say we, nobody's looking at it. It's an artificial intelligence that is looking at these things. It's marking everything that it finds and it raises red flags when it needs to. And the red flags are not raised to the beekeeper. We're not interrupting the beekeeper. He might ask to be notified But we don't need the beekeeper because if we see a problem like a swarm cell or yeah. a superseder cell, the robot itself makes a decision on what needs to happen because these are very simple rules. Yeah. If you identify a swarming starting to happen and we do it visually, just like a beekeeper would do. Remember that a beekeeper comes to the hives and they open right. the hatch and they look with their eyes. We do the same thing, right? Same techniques. Nothing has changed in beekeeping. Um, And so uh, if it's dark or not, that doesn't matter to the camera. The camera can see everything uh, with amazing resolution. Um, and the artificial intelligence, you train it to work. Yeah. And after some training, it works pretty amazingly. And then there's another, there's another neural network, which is called a recurrent neural network, which is really reinforcement learning. It learns how the specific actions that it took affect the result and by that it becomes smarter over time and as our portfolio grows that ai learns more and more and becomes essentially a better beekeeper incredible and do, i assume you've watched a lot of this footage just out of curiosity and and for fun um how often do you find yourself dreaming about bees we all dream about bees you know that You know, we're only 30 people strong in our company. And so, but every hire that we hire to our company, uh, the criteria is, you know, whether they're, they get attached to our mission. You right. can be the most talented person in the world in your specific area. Right. But if you don't get attached to what we do, to the fact that we're trying to save the bees, the first solution on the planet to actually save the bees at scale If you don't get attached to that, you're not going to be part of the BYS team because we all have to be aligned. When we come to the office, uh, uh, you know, we come to, we come not only to another day at work, we come to save the bees every single day over and over again. 
Uh, and so, yeah, we dream about bees during the day and during the night, all the time, seriously. Amazing. Um, maybe some of our audience members will also dream of bees uh, tonight after this, uh, this, this fireside chat. Now, when you look ahead five years, what does the future of commercial beekeeping look like? And it seems almost inevitable if this is priced uh, you know, in, in a cost-effective way that <clears throat> if you look really far out, the wooden box will actually be just a relic of the past. No one would opt for that technology once this thing is, you know, accessible and, and affordable, right? Yeah, so that's my hope. You know, I, I want to stay humble and, and realistic. The idea is this, though. What, what keeps me going is the fact that, you know, we all tend to think, uh, you know, when we see those wooden hives in the field, we tend to think it's a very romantic thing. And some people make the mistake of thinking that's the natural habitat of bees. It's not the natural habitat of bees. Bees build hives in trees, in the right. ground, on plants, right? Uh, we humans, a, a gentleman by the name of Longstroth invented that hive. Right. And since then, it became the standard, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a certain critical mass of hives that were sold for yeah. that specific wooden box to become the standard. And by the way, that white box if you really think about it, it's a black box. You have no idea what's going on inside until you open it up. It's just colored in white. Yeah. But that box became a standard. And so uh, today that box doesn't work anymore. With, uh, with the modern stressors that are happening around the globe, that box is killing our bees. Yeah. And so our box isn't. Our box is keeping the bees alive. And again, like I said, we see a a less than 8% colony collapse, we can even lower it. I have high confidence we can lower that once we start optimizing for that. We're not even optimizing for it yet. This is a pretty nascent product, like I said. But uh, I want to get to that critical mass, to that threshold from which this becomes the new standard, right? When you see enough of your competitors in the fields use this device and get make data-driven decisions, be able to see on a computer monitor the internals of your hive 24-7, up to date, see the actions the robot took to save your colonies, see what could have happened if the robot didn't take that action, what actually happened now. You realize that, uh, you know, I'm hoping that this will become, there will be a network effect where people will start utilizing this technology. Uh, and yeah, hopefully this will become the new standard uh, over the course of the next few years. Amazing. Um, I'm going to open it up for questions to the audience. If anyone has, uh, you know, something that they're curious about, we have the, the man, the myth and the legend on the line uh, for another few minutes. So feel free to submit um, your questions via the, the Q&A. Um, in, yeah, in don't, yeah. don't be shy. Uh, uh, we can do puns all night long. Yeah, we can. Um, Let's see, we got one, one question coming through. Um, it was more of a, a thank you, not, uh, not a specific question, but uh, um, Anita Zager appreciates what you are doing for the bees and the whole planet and, and appreciates the, the questions and the answers. Um, I just want to answer to that real quick. I know it's not a question, but Anita, I want you to realize and anybody else that, that is aware of what we're doing, we haven't done anything yet, right? The idea that you invent the technology 
is not the solution. It's just the, the potential to save the bees. Now, now starts the really hard work. You know, how do you, how, how do you distribute this? How do you make it work, you know, at scale? How do you cope with the problems that we haven't identified yet? How do you cope with newer problems that the bees will face? So, so we, have, we have a very long way ahead of us. Uh, I'm very confident in the technology that we've created, uh, very much so. And, and you know, I'm, I'm uh, lucky enough to have met people who kind of allow us to do this and, and kind of finance us along this journey. Uh, but really just to kind of really keep things in perspective, we have not done anything yet. The real journey begins now. We actually have, like I said, uh, you know, over 40 of these devices scattered in the fields. By the end of this year, we plan to have a few hundreds, uh, mostly in the U.S., uh, East Coast, West Coast, Midland. And next year, we're planning on having um, almost, you know, thousands of these devices and the year after tens of thousands. So we're, we're very adamant and very stubborn at solving the bee problem. Uh, uh, we're all coming to work very mission-driven to save the bees. Uh, and we're a commercial entity, meaning we're not doing it, we're not a not-for-profit that can evaporate tomorrow. We really are very focused on, on making this work. And you know, time will tell how successful we'll be. Thank you. And then we have another one from John in the audience, basically, uh, you know, wondering about robotic bees um, as opposed to real bees. Um, is that potentially a more um, uh, accessible or um, sustainable solution? Um, not have to keep growing bees, but just to have, you know, tiny little robots flying around carrying, um, you know, pollen. And actually, there are companies who are doing this, who are working on such solutions. And, and you know, and I appreciate any technology that would save the bee eventually. Um, and I always see that when you deal with such a big problem, any competition could be competition, and you can cooperate with your competitors because we all have a common goal. That's very important to me. And I work hard in trying to make that happen. Um, but I would say, you know, there's two, there's two general philosophies uh, when you think about bees, uh, one is, you know, the bees will, will go away. We're going to lose them in the next 10, 20 years. And so we need an alternative, hence robotic bees or uh, robotic pollination, or there's a lot of good ideas around that whole paradigm of we'll lose our bees. And then there's companies like us and other companies in the world uh, that are doing a good job uh, um, some are Israeli in the US that are doing a fantastic job at thinking, okay, we're going to try and save the bees. We actually believe the bees will stay. They're here to stay. We're gonna give them a fighting chance. And so how do we actually enable them, right? Instead of replace them. Uh, replacing bees is, is just, it's, uh, you know, I hate to think even about that option, but when you think about it really kind of from a professional standpoint, it's a very expensive thing. If you wanna have robotic bees, I mean, you know, just to give you guys a perspective or some context, in a wooden box, there could be up to 100,000 bees, you know, 50 to 100,000 bees in that one single wooden box. And so think about our device. We have 24, the equivalent of 24 hives, which is about a million bees. 
and so there are 100 million hives in the world. Multiply 100 million times 50,000, that's a lot of bees. And they're relatively cheap to maintain and to create. It's nature, right? Now, if you want to have the equivalent of these bees uh, using robotic bees, uh, it's just, it feels to me like it's cost prohibitive, but many people say that about our solution. Many people think our solution is cost prohibitive too. And we prove beyond all doubt that it's not. And so uh, I might be mistaken about robotic bees and maybe that's one of the solutions. And there's always the hybrid model, right? Use bees and use robotic bees at the same time to complement each other. Definitely a solution. Cool. Um... Okay, we, we have a few other questions. One is, are you considering Shark Tank? I'm not. I'm too scared for that. Yeah, Cuban's... Uh, uh, Cuban, Cuban missed this one, though. He should have taken a stab at the, the seed. Um, and then we have another question. How do you envision this working within climate change? But I'm not sure I really understand the question. So That's a, that's a good question, actually. You know, like... Uh, Climate change is a, is a moving target, right? It's not something that you solve for now because we keep ruining that over and over again. We, we, it gets worse and, and suddenly we find you. Like, you know, wildfires, it's a big problem for bees today. It didn't used to be. Floods is an issue for bees. It didn't used right. to be. Right. So, so how do you cope with that? Again, I actually think you cope with technology, right? Now, now here, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to answer... Any question you guys have around features or how do we cope or what do we do, I want you to think about it this way, right? Uh, when you have a, a platform like that, that has power, connectivity, and artificial intelligence, you have a platform. You can do anything. You can add software, you can add hardware, you can do, you can solve for any problem that uh, arises in the future, long-term and short-term. That wooden box, that 170-year-old wooden box is not a platform. You can do almost anything in it. You can put some sensors in it. You can weigh it. You can't really manipulate it as much. And so right. what's important is the transition to this new beehive. When you move to this new hive, which is a platform, then you can really start fantasizing how to cope with big issues like climate change. I'll give you guys an example. Pesticides. Big problem, right? People put pesticides over huge areas. How do we cope with them? This device, you see those op openings here? All these openings are where the bees come in and out. These are the entrances of the bees. Mm -hmm. If we sense pesticides in the field, we have small sensors, they're very cheap. We put them all around the device. If we sense pesticides or any harmful substances, we shut down the device, it just locks down. It closes all these hatches. And so the bees are in the field. I mean, they're gone. They're dead. There's nothing we can do to help them. They've already tasted the, the, the harmful substances, right? They bathed in them. But the bees inside, the colonies, the queen, what keeps the, the colony alive, you want to save that so you don't have the colony collapse. When bees come into the hives with harmful substances, they actually they, they, they affect the entire hive, the entire colony. So if we, if we prevent them from coming in with those substances, we can actually save the colony. So you close the whole device for a day, for a couple of days. Uh, then you open it back up and you saved 24 colonies or maybe 2,400 colonies yeah. with a very, very simple mechanism, just shutting down a mechanical, silly 
mechanism, right? And so this is what I mean when I talk about a platform. You can do amazing things in a very cheap, cost-effective way that have tremendous impact on bee populations. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to see what the future holds for, for the bees now that we have uh, the bee home. And um, I wanna thank, wait, let's see. Okay, yeah, I wanna thank uh, all of our attendees for again, making time to, to learn a little bit more about this incredibly unique uh, creature uh, that was recently declared the most important living being on earth. Uh, and I really appreciate your time as well, Sar. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining me for this uh, lively conversation. Thank you for having me and thank you guys for your comments. That's actually a good idea about the shark tank, just the exposure, but, but thank you everybody. And I just want to leave you guys with one thought, if I may, right? Like always people say one last sentence, spread the word, spread the word because we want to give bees a fighting chance. We want to change the course of history. We want to have a point in history where suddenly you know, the course of, of, of things change for the better for the bees and for, for humans too, right? We're all dependent on the bees pollination. And so we're hoping, you know, I'm a technologist. I used to be a software guy. So I believe in technology and I believe technology can solve almost for everything. And this is how I apply my, myself to saving this planet, you know, one bee at a time. And so if you see these devices in the field, take photos, upload them, send them to us, you know, hashtag them. And uh, hopefully you'll see more and more of them and more bees buzzing around. And maybe Thank even a bee, maybe even a bee wrap if we're lucky. I'm looking forward to that. Good afternoon, good evening, good night to everyone and uh, looking forward to uh, the next chat. Toda, Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.